The epistle is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the third chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. People tend to think of life as a series of upgrades and improvements. So as you make your way through life, you're trying to do better and better to gain some advantage. You think this way, especially when you're a little kid. When you're a kid, all you want to do is get to the next level, to grow up, to get bigger, so you can do bigger and better things. You want to be more responsible. You want to have more freedom and independence. You always want that upgrade. I think we often think that way, even as adults, we are looking for the next thing. Whether it's an improvement in our, the stuff that we have, a better car, a better house, a better situation, whatever it is, a better life, that's what we're looking for. Some sort of an upgrade, some sort of an improvement. That's the way the world really thinks. That's what drives so much of life, especially in our day and age. This kind of all-consuming aim at something better, something bigger, something more. It's important to observe, however, that all of those things, all of those bigger, better, more kinds of things, those improvements, those add-ons, they're really just a newer version of the old. They tire out just as the old thing did. So you get a new car, and what happens to that new car? It gets old. You get a new house, what happens to that house? It gets dirty. You find a new job, what happens to that job? You get bored with it. Always new, always better, always really just more of the same. I think it was very easy for people at the time of Jesus, while he was walking around teaching and preaching and healing and doing miracles, it was easy for them to think of Jesus as just a newer version of the thing that they had already had before. They'd had prophets, they'd had priests, they had kings, they'd had preachers, people telling them God's word, and they thought that Jesus was just sort of a newer, upgraded version of that. He's better than all of those guys that came before. They knew that he would be better. That's what the prophecies all said. They knew that he would be a better David. He'd be a better king than David. He'd better, be a better prophet than Moses. 
But they couldn't help but think that that just meant he was an upgraded version. Like maybe he's got some new features. Maybe that means he won't die. Maybe that means he'll be perfect. He'll never make any mistakes. Maybe that means he'll always be on our side and we will never lose sight of him. That's what they tended to think. He's just like the old guys, just a newer and a better version. Peter thought that. You know how it goes for Peter. He's this blustery disciple that Jesus has who says all kinds of things, whatever comes to mind. And oftentimes he's just right. So Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? He wants to know who the disciples think he is. And Peter gives the grade A textbook answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. An answer with not, which not many people wanted to give. An answer which Jesus says was not revealed to Peter by flesh and blood, but by his own heavenly father. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what Peter said. But then Jesus goes on in that conversation to say to Peter, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. And Peter says, no, that's not what you're going to do. That's not who you are. That's not what the Christ does. He doesn't die. He doesn't get betrayed. He doesn't lose. He doesn't become weak and foolish and low and despised. That's not who the Christ is. Peter couldn't grasp it. And in that moment, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking of the things of God, but the things of man. Peter couldn't comprehend it. Three times Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die and on the third day rise. And then when it happened, they were confused. They couldn't grasp it. They were unprepared. They didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear yet, which is how things go for us in this world. You have to know this as Christians, that you cannot see and you cannot hear unless Jesus and his spirit opens your eyes and opens your ears. That's how it works for repentance. So no one can understand what the Christian faith is about. No one can understand what it means to be a Christian until the Holy Spirit has worked repentance in their hearts. You would never know what the Christian faith is unless Jesus showed you your sin and then offered you forgiveness. No one else can understand unless you've received that. Just like no one really could understand what the Christ was to do, who Jesus was to be, until there he hung on the cross and breathed his last and said, it is finished, was laid in the tomb and three days later rose. No one could understand. I think that's what's behind what's going on today as Jesus comes to John to be baptized. John couldn't understand why Jesus would need to be baptized by him. After all, baptism wasn't just some sort of a symbolic thing. It wasn't just an empty ritual, but it actually did something. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If baptism was just some sort of a commitment that you make to Jesus, then guess who would be the prime candidate for baptism? Jesus himself. Yes, I'm committed. I'm perfect. I'm ready to go. But that's not what baptism was. John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John knew who Jesus was. John knew that Jesus was the perfect one. After all, when Mary came and visited John's mother Elizabeth, while both of them were just in the womb, when Mary walked in the door, John leapt in his mother's womb because he knew who Jesus was. That he was coming to do something spectacular. And in fact, just before our lesson today, John says about Jesus, this is what he says. He has come with his winnowing fork in his hand to clear the threshing floor. 
to gather the wheat into his barn and to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's something spectacular. John knew that something spectacular was coming with Jesus. But as far as John knows, this is how cleanness works. You need somebody clean who stays clean in order to make you clean. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. The priests had to be clean in order to cleanse the people. They had to be pure in order to rightly offer the sacrifices that would atone for the sins. You needed somebody who was kept pristine and pure in order to provide cleanness to everyone else. That's how it makes sense intuitively. If you've got something that's dirty, if you've got dirty hands and you clean them with a clean rag, guess what happens to that rag? It becomes dirty. If you try to clean your hands with a dirty rag, it's not going to do you any good. And if you've cleaned your hands with a dirty rag, you can't use that rag anymore to clean anything else. So, of course, it makes sense that if Jesus is going to cleanse the world, if he's going to toss away the chaff and he's going to save the wheat, if he's going to be a savior for our people, then he needs to stay clean. What business does he have in that water? Why does he need to have anything forgiven? What is repentance for him? John couldn't understand it. He couldn't grasp it because it didn't make sense yet what Jesus was about. It's not that John didn't believe. John believed in Jesus. But until Jesus died, until he rose from the dead, really no one, no one could comprehend. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus approached his disciples and said to them, Do you still not believe? Do you still not see that everything I said to you has come true? That the way that Jesus is going to save his people, the way that he's going to gather the wheat and burn the chaff, is by taking the place of sinners. Not by standing outside of them as someone who is pure and holy and distant, but as someone who is going to find himself exactly in the midst of people who did not deserve him, people who would reject and betray him, people who were dirty beyond measure. What Jesus was doing by getting in the water while John was baptizing was identifying himself with sinners. It's like St. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus got into the water not because he had sins that needed to be forgiven, but because he was coming to absorb all of our sins. Because he was coming to take our place, to find himself numbered among sinners, and in their stead, suffer and die so that they did not have to. Jesus was coming to fulfill all righteousness. John was a good man, so that while he didn't understand it, he still obeyed. He still did what Jesus said. He baptized him. And the heavens were opened, and a voice came, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove, showing, confirming, that Jesus is here to do something brand new, something completely different. Jesus is not just an upgraded version of the old, but he's something completely new. Jesus tells a parable later in the gospel, actually a parable that he tells to John's disciples. They come to him and they ask him, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting like we do? Why aren't they honoring all of the the uh, ceremonial regulations like we do. And Jesus said to those disciples, he said, you can't take new wine and pour it into an old wineskin. If you try and do that, it'll burst the old wineskin. You can't take a new piece of cloth, an unshrunk piece of cloth, and patch it on an old piece of cloth. It'll tear it. 
in the end. You can't take something new. You can't take me, Jesus says, something new, not just an upgraded, improved version of the old. You can't take something completely different and put it in the same box that you had before. I'm here to do something completely different. Not to offer sacrifices for sin that are outside of me, that have to go on and on and on. Not to stay distant or separate from those who are unclean, but to be among them and to take their uncleanness into myself. Not to look from the outside at sin and make judgments about it, but to take that sin upon myself and suffer the judgment for your sake. That's what Jesus had come to do. That's why when Paul talks about who you are as Christians, those who are weak, those who are foolish, those who are low and despised, all he's doing really is calling you people who are just like Jesus. After all, who would pick a religion where the leader dies on the cross a miserable and unjust death? Who would pick a savior who suffers? Who would pick a savior who leads you to suffering as well? Certainly none of us. Certainly none of us unless we had been called by the gospel, unless we had been shown by the Holy Spirit the glory that Jesus brings for us. Now, just like those people at the time of Jesus, and even many people today, thought that Jesus was just a new and improved version of the old, many people tend to think that Christianity is just sort of like an improvement, an upgrade on life. It's something that you can add to the mix or call on when you want, just like some membership in some other organization. So you use the library when you, got, when you need some books because you've got a library card, but there it is, an option along the way. I heard something this week. President Biden gave a speech on January 6th, and he did this very thing. It's not unique to President Biden. People do this all the time. He quoted the Bible in this speech on January 6th. He said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Thinking about the Bible and God's word as some sort of an add-on, something you can just tack on to a speech to give it some credibility. This has been done for a long time. In fact, if you go to the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, there on the wall are these words, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Of course, nobody understands what that means because this is the context. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Not just as an add-on, you can have the truth when you want it from the Bible. But if you abide in my word, if you're my disciples, if Jesus is the center of your life, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This kind of thinking that Christianity or Jesus is just an add-on to our life is pervasive. This is what runs amok in our education system from beginning to end. The idea that religion is just another subject that we might teach alongside other subjects. When in fact religion is the only subject that matters. The one that holds sway day in and day out. Not just one that you can decide is less or more important than any other, but the only subject, the only truth that wins the day. Or how we think about our lives is another one. You can think about life as a series of choices that you make. This is how the world wants you to think of it. You've got all kinds of choices. You can choose a job, you can choose a career, you can choose a house, a car, a spouse, you can choose a church. Just a series of choices, preferential choices, whatever it is that you like. Tack on a church to your life as an upgrade, to feel good when you need it, to get something when you want it. That's not how the church is at all. That's not how Jesus is. That's not how Christians are. The world wants us to think this way, and so we have to repent. We absorb this in the air we breathe. We have to repent of thinking of Jesus as anything other than our source of life. This is what Paul says. 
He is our source of life, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. He has come not just to upgrade us, not just to be an improvement, but to give us his own righteousness, to fulfill all righteousness, to give us something that no, matter of, no manner of self-improvement can ever give you, to give you perfection, to forgive your sins, to take away and right everything that has gone wrong in your lives, to give you a future and a hope which the world could never give you. That is what Jesus has come to do. That's why he gets into the water to be baptized by John. That's why he dies on the cross. That's why he rose from the dead. And that's why he is here today to continue giving himself to you. Rejoice that you have such a loving Savior. To him alone be all glory now and forever. Amen.